I want to encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, let's turn together to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 8. Book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Last week we began a series that will carry us through the latter part of the year, walking through the book of Philippians. And we began with just a, a brief introduction last week about the setting and the background of and the purpose of why Paul is writing this letter. And I wanted just to remind you of a couple of things about that, because what we find here in this, in a, in a very short and brief book, is just a, a letter of, of heartfelt desire and happiness and rejoicing that the Apostle Paul is writing back to the church at Philippi. Oftentimes when we see Paul's letters, we see there that he's writing back with some issues that he has to correct, maybe false doctrine or church discipline issues that have crept up that he needs to address and make sure that those things are taken care of. And there are a couple of small, minor things that Paul encourages them in here. But but overwhelmingly, this is just a letter of Paul's joy and happiness writing back about what is happening at the church at Philippi. It really has been called the epistle of joy. And this is kind of the overarching theme we're going to see marching through this book. And even as we continue this morning, I want you to see in this passage today the foundation of joy. The foundation of joy, because this is what our overarching text is going to be today, seeing how Paul lays out the reason for his joy in the church here at Philippi. And if you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand and let us read God's Word together. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start with verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I've had you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all within the affection of Christ Jesus. You can be seated. This is a letter of great joy. And great joy is found in Christ. Great joy is found in where we put our hope and where we put our trust. And this is the thing that we have to understand moving forward is that to know Christian joy is to know where to put our hope and our trust. And that's found in God and in God alone. The psalmist makes this very clear. Psalm chapter 42 and verse 5, he says, Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Maybe you've had that prayer. Maybe you've had that feeling in your own heart where you feel that as your soul is disturbed and turning over and you're in despair and you don't know where to turn. Well, the psalmist answers his own question. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Later on in that same psalm, the psalmist writes again, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? And again, he answers his own question, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Joy comes from a confident hope and trust in God and not in anything else. And Paul understood this. But Paul also understood that that joy comes and is manifested in so many different ways as we trust in God and the work that he is doing. The first thing that I want you to notice here in this passage this morning is that Paul had a thankful heart. A thankful heart. Look with me at verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. This is a a very personal letter from the Apostle Paul. And he starts out there. He says, I thank it's just he, He's just ruminating over as he's sitting in prison. This is where the Apostle Paul is. He's in Rome right now. He's sitting in prison. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or die, but he expects that death is soon coming for him. And so as, as Paul sits there and he, he's in this position, he begins to think, what, what, what are the greatest things that I hope in? What are the greatest things that bring me joy? And sitting in prison, waiting for what he thought would be the end, the first, one of the first things that came to his mind was the joy that he found inside the people of the church at Philippi. But notice here, 
That it's not just about the joy of the people, but he understands that that joy comes from a source, and that source is God, as we've already said. So Paul was thankful for God. And Paul had a deep relationship with God. Now, we don't have to really expound more upon that. All we have to do is read through all of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament. Read through all of his writings, and we understand the deep and committed relationship that Paul had with God. He had already acknowledged Christ as his master in verse 1. Remember last week we looked, it says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants or slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul knew who he served. Paul knew the uh, things that he had given over to Christ, that he was no longer his own, but he was one who had been bought for, bought and paid for with a price. And he had given everything about himself to the service of God. And he was thankful for that. He was thankful that he had that relationship, and he realized that everything that he had came from one source, and that was God and God alone. Notice here that Paul calls him my God. There's a thing to consider here that he doesn't say, I'm thankful for a God, or I'm thankful for the God, but he says, I'm thankful for my God. There is a possessiveness there. And brothers and sisters, that possessiveness happens for each and every single one of us here this morning who are in Christ Jesus. When we talk about God the Father, the creator of heavens and the earth, the Almighty, He is not just a distant deity in the sky. He's not just one of many gods. He is the God, but He is also my God. He is your God. He has bought us back unto Himself. There's such a joy that Paul has here understanding that this is his God whom he has given himself to and whom he serves And so in this thankful heart, Paul is thankful for God, but he's also thankful for the memories. Because notice what he says. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul really only had joyful memories about his time in Philippi. You remember from our study last week, he was sovereignly guided there. Paul had desired to go to another place, and he saw a vision of a man from Macedonia And said, come over and and preach the gospel to us. And so Paul diverted by the sovereign direction of the Holy Spirit to go over to Macedonia where Philippi was. And he ended up here in this town that had no gospel gospel witness. It was the first time that the gospel made it into Europe. And as Paul arrived there, he found a woman, Lydia, outside of the city. And he preached the gospel to her. And she was converted in her household. And it's really wonderful there what the Scripture tells us is that after she and her household had been baptized, they had put their faith and trust in Christ. She urged them to stay in her house. She showed them great hospitality and gave them a base for the ministry there in Philippi. And soon after that, there was a servant girl who was a practitioner of divination and fortune-telling. And this young woman, Paul, cast a demon out of, and she is believed come to faith in Christ. And because of this casting the demon out of this young girl, the the men who used to control her and use her to make money raised up a ruckus inside of Philippi and had Paul and Silas thrown into jail. But even in the midst of being thrown into jail there in Philippi, Paul and Silas did not despair, but they began to praise God. And they began to sing and they began to worship. Why? Because their joy is not found in their circumstances, but their joy is found in Christ. And Paul understood and realized that no matter where he was and no matter what his circumstances looked like, that God was always at work. And brothers and sisters, that's what we have to understand. As I look around the room this morning, I know many of you in here, and I know many of the circumstances that some of you have walked through, some of them good and some of them not so good, some of them in health and some of them in sickness. But let me encourage you this morning that no matter where you find yourself today, God is right there in the midst of it with you. And you can know true Christian joy this morning, no matter what your circumstances look like. So Paul and Silas did not let the circumstances of prison cause them to despair or fall into depression, but they begin to sing praises to God. And in the middle of the night, an earthquake happens and all the doors are opened. And the jailer, thinking that everyone has escaped, is getting ready to take his own life when Paul cries out and says, don't do it. Do not take your life. We're all still here. And the testimony of Paul's faith causes this jailer to trust in Christ. And his household is saved. After Paul gets out of prison there in Philippi and he begins to move on, the church at Philippi was not done in their ministry to the apostle Paul. 
You see, not too long after that, and we'll look at this later in the study of this book, Paul had left Macedonia, but he was, the, the ministry was struggling financially. And in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. This church was passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ, passionate about supporting the ministry of Paul. So as Paul thought back and he remembered, he remembered what they had done and it caused him great joy in his heart. Not only did they support that ministry there, but as Paul thought back, he was brought even more joy because he remembered that this church at Philippi supported the collection that he started for the believers in Jerusalem. And what was so amazing about this was that the church of Philippi was not a wealthy church. It was not a church that was over, overwhelmed with abundance. And in fact, Paul says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with so much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. What Paul is saying here is he says they gave to their means and above their means. They gave sacrificially. He said, and even when we tried to push back, he said, they begged us for the opportunity to be able to pour into the ministry there in Jerusalem. So Paul was thankful for the memories that he had of this. His thankful heart was also thankful for the fellowship of these believers. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He looked back and he recognized everything that had happened. And all the joy that he had experienced while they're ministering, they're planning that church, they're sharing the gospel, seeing people come to faith in Christ. And there's no doubt that in Paul's time there, there were probably some circumstances that weren't so joyful. There were probably some instances of, of dealing with people that maybe didn't in that moment bring happiness to Paul's life. But brothers and sisters, the thing of it is, is that when we look back and when we look over, we need to be able to overlook those things doesn't deny that those things happen. But it is a desire to have Christian joy. We overlook those things. Paul overlooked what had happened to him and the reason he was thrown into prison. Because he saw the hand and the work of God in the midst of that circumstance. So not only did Paul have a thankful heart, but secondly, I want you to know that Paul had a prayerful life. Look at verse 4. He says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. The word prayer is supplication, petition, request. It's going to God and, and taking those things to Him, asking God to do something, asking God to move in a particular situation or to answer a certain request that we have. We, we understand as, as Christians what prayer is. But the question that what I would have for you this morning is, do we understand the privilege of prayer? that God has given us this means and opportunity and avenue to commune with Him and to bring those things to Him. I think so often as 21st century Christians, we tend to just, we can have the tendency to pass by how much of a privilege prayer is for us. You know, in the Old Testament, the people of God, the Israelites, they couldn't go to God. They, they couldn't just stop in the middle of what they were doing and ask God to do something for them. They had to go through the high priest. If they wanted to take their request to God, they had to go to the high priest, and the high priest on their behalf would take those things to God. But now, because of what Christ has done, the veil in the temple was torn into two, symbolizing that now Jesus is our mediator. And all we have to do is anywhere we are, you can be at home, you can be driving down the road, you can be at work, you can be in the middle of a desert somewhere, you can stop and you can begin to talk to God. And not only are you talking about, the scripture tells us that God hears our prayers. He hears and longs to hear the prayers of his people. And so Paul tells us here that he has a habit of prayer. Because he says, always offering prayer. Paul was a great prayer warrior. I'm sure when I say that, maybe many of you have somebody who pops into your mind who you've known in your life who was a, 
maybe a great prayer warrior, someone who was always praying and committed to praying and making and, and taking requests to people, somebody who you knew if a circumstance happened in your life that the first person you wanted to call was this particular person because of their prayer life. But as I was thinking about this this week and reading this passage of Scripture, you know what came to my mind? You know what it takes to be a great prayer warrior? It doesn't take a level of education. It doesn't take that you have to go to a certain class and, and learn the, the right linguistic things to say to God. All it takes to be a great prayer warrior is you have to stop and pray. We, we can tend to elevate certain people up and say, oh, well, so-and-so is a great prayer warrior. Well, you know why they are a great prayer warrior? It's because they take time to pray. We can be so dismissive of the power of prayer, so dismissive of the privilege of prayer, and so distracted from the habit of prayer. Paul made it a habit in his life. He, he talks, in other words, of, of praying at all times, praying without ceasing. And it doesn't mean that Paul was always walking continually around praying at every single moment. But what it means is that in any circumstance, in any in any position of life, Paul was instantly able to turn from that circumstance and go to prayer to God. It was his first line of travel. We're tempted when something comes up and happens in our lives, a difficult circumstance, something we don't know what we need to do. We're tempted to pick out our phone and call somebody and ask them for their opinion. We're picking to pick up our phone and say, okay, Google, how do I answer this question? But the first thing that we should be driven to do is to go to God in prayer. So Paul says that he has this habit of prayer because he says, I am always offering prayer. We cannot expect great things from God if we neglect the habit of prayer. I want to say that again. We cannot expect great things from God if we neglect the habit of prayer. How important is prayer in your own life? I'm not asking you to raise your hand this morning, but I am asking you to evaluate that question in your heart. How important is prayer to you in your own personal Christian walk? Because without it, you can accomplish nothing for God. You can accomplish things in your own strength that will eventually fail. You can try to do things in your flesh that will eventually fall apart. But if you want to be used by God and to do great things for God, and brothers and sisters, that's not, that's not a prideful thing to desire to. It's a good thing to desire to do great things for God and to be used of God. But if you want to do that, you must be committed to the habit of prayer. Not only was Paul's prayer for life a one of habitual prayer, but it was also one of joyful prayer. He says, always offering prayer with joy. Joy fills this epistle from beginning to end. Remember, we talked about last week, the difference between happiness and joy is happiness is affected by our circumstance and joy stands resolute no matter what happens. And it seems illogical that Paul, in the middle of prison, not knowing whether he's going to live or die, could say that every time I go to the Lord in prayer, I am praying with joy on the inside. One commentator said, intercession is not a burden to be borne, but an exercise of the soul to be performed with joy. If we're honest with ourselves, there's probably been times in our lives where we've viewed prayer as a burden more than a joy. It's something we know that we should do. And so we begrudgingly say, okay, Lord, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to pray. But brothers and sisters, when we truly understand what prayer is, and when we truly understand how powerful it is in our lives and how powerful it is in the lives of others, it will fill us with such great joy that it is something that we don't begrudgingly do, but something that we look forward to doing, something that we want to do whenever we have the opportunity or the circumstance that we can pray. And notice here Paul's prayers about this joy is prayers for other people. Paul found great joy not just in praying for himself, because he did that at times. He requested prayer for himself. But Paul's great joy was to being able to pray for others. It should be a joy for us to lift others up, 
to pray for their needs and to bring them before the throne of God. Christians who possess this kind of joy are more focused on the needs, concerns, and the situation of other people than they are on themselves. John MacArthur said that throughout the history of the church, only a minority of Christians have known the true, full joy that God gives to His obedient children. And I believe I would agree with that. I don't think that far enough Christians know the joy that comes from that committed type of prayer because we're so easily distracted. There's something around us every single moment. It's the phone ringing. It's the television on. Somebody's stopping by. I, I remember reading several biographies of, of men and women of old who, who committed themselves to prayer. And, and I can't remember now because I've read so many different stories, but uh, of one preacher who in the evening, it didn't matter who was at his house, didn't matter whether it was the president, didn't matter whether it was the king. When it came time for him to go to his study and to pray, he would get up from the table, walk into his room, and shut the door. Because that's how important it was. It was so important that not even the highest dignitary, not even the most important person world in a worldly sense, was going to keep this individual from going into that room and getting before his Lord and Savior and praying. Because the desire is to lift others up and the desire is the concern for others. Paul's concern was the church at Philippi and that they would continue in knowing this joy, continue in this happiness, continue in this walk with Christ that would propel them forward. From a personal example, I can think of something that happened not too long ago for myself. Many of you remember Miss Eleanor Carmichael. And I can remember, and Miss Brenda, you were, you were actually there that day. I went by to visit with her, not just a few days before she passed. And her health had, had greatly declined. And she knew, and the family knew, that her days were not many left upon this earth. And so I went over that day and, and took my Bible and was desiring to go in to just read some scriptures with her and pray with her and encourage her as she came near to the end of her life. But you know what ended up happening? She ended up trying to encourage me more than I encouraged her. She was more concerned about me and about what was going on in my life and what was happening with my family and what was happening with the church and the ministry here than she was about talking about her own situation. And brothers and sisters, that's a demonstration of that. Her life was filled with joy. It didn't matter the circumstances. And if you knew Miss Eleanor, you knew that she had gone through a very, very hard life. But she had joy. Joy that was found in the hope of Christ and what He had done, that no matter what her circumstances had been, she could rejoice in the Lord. And this is what Paul would later say here in the book of Philippians. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That command is not just, brothers and sisters, when things are great for us or good for us by circumstances, but rejoicing in the midst of difficulty, rejoicing in the midst of trial, rejoicing in the midst of hardship, knowing that God has it all under control. Paul also specifies here the necessity and the focus of prayer. Because he says, I'm going to pray in every prayer for you all. The prayer of a Christian is not something that is optional. The prayer for a Christian is something that is necessary. We must be praying. We must be taking our needs to God. We must be taking our desires to God. Because we're going to walk through the good and the bad circumstances. Paul even talks about this later on in this book. That while he was in prison, he said there were some who were proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives. He said, they're only desiring to cause me distress in my imprisonment. But he says, only in every way, whether pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. He says, some of these guys are out here preaching the gospel just to try to spite me just to try to get back at me or to do something to me, to cause me stress. He says, but brothers and sisters, as long as the name of Christ is being proclaimed, I don't care. 
I'm going to rejoice that the name of Christ is going forth. Later on, Paul would talk about brethren who had began to follow in the pattern of Christianity, but then walked away and become enemies of the cross who are bound for destruction. And the reason that Paul points all this out is because he shows us the necessity of prayer because there are going to be circumstances where things are going to feel really, really good for us and we should pray and rejoice in Christ. And there are going to be circumstances where things feel dismal. Times where we feel overwhelmed and that we pray all the more. Paul says that he focuses on their prayers because he's praying for them. The third thing I want you to notice in this passage this morning is not only his thankful heart and his prayerful life, but I want you to notice his gospel focus. Look at verse 5. He says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. What brought Paul the greatest joy was understanding that the church at Philippi was an active participant in the work of the gospel ministry with him. Paul was not a lone ranger. He did not desire to just move from town to town and have everybody talk about how great he was in preaching the gospel. Paul desired to establish churches and that those churches might work cooperatively together for the cause of the gospel. And this is something we need to remember. The church down the street from us, if that church is a gospel-preaching church, that church is not our enemy. That church is not our competition. We're not here on Sunday morning saying, oh, well, I wish that some of those people would come over here or, or I wish that we would grow this. Like, no, if that church is faithfully preaching the gospel, we rejoice in that. We praise God that there's another gospel-preaching church here in Haywood County. Because let me be clear this morning, we could fill up every single church in Haywood County this morning, and there's a lot of churches in Haywood County. There are 62 Southern Baptist churches alone in Haywood County. But if every single one of them were filled to capacity this morning, you know what? There would still need to be more churches to reach every single person in Haywood County. So we rejoice that gospel ministry is going forth. And so Paul had gone on. He had planted other churches. But he was rejoicing in the fact of their participation in the gospel. The church at Philippi had a working gospel. Because he says they're in view of your participation. They were doing something. As Paul looked back and he saw what had happened there, there was something that he could demonstratively see was happening there at the church of Philippi. The church was active, it was healthy, it was growing, and it was ministering. Paul could look back and see the work that they were doing. This message came to Paul by Epaphroditus who had come to Rome and he was the one who took this letter back to the Philippian church. And so as Paul has heard the testimony from this, this leader or one of the elders there perhaps in the church, Paul knew what was happening there. And he was rejoicing in the fact that it was a working gospel. The gospel was going out and this church was doing something. Because brothers and sisters, a saving gospel is a working gospel. Not that we're saved by our works. I always have to emphasize that. I don't want that to ever be misunderstood. We are not saved by our works. But if we are saved, we will work. If we have put our faith in Christ, it will be demonstrated by the things that we are doing in our lives. And so the church at Philippi, because they had a true saving faith, they were out doing the work of the gospel. And Paul says not only was it a working gospel, but it was a adjoining gospel because they were participating together. The word is fellowship or cooperation or to have in common. And so we are joining together to take the gospel to the world. I've already mentioned earlier how the church at Philippi had continued to do this, how they joined with Paul financially because they had over and over again, over and above their needs, sent over and above their means, they had sent Paul gifts, financial gifts to support the work of his ministry. Even when no other church had, the church at Philippi had committed themselves to send Paul what he needed. But there's also a spiritual joining because they had shared in the struggle of the gospel. When he was there, Lydia brought him into their household, showed them much um, hospitality and comfort. The church of Philippi, even as Paul is writing this letter, had sent Epaphroditus there to encourage Paul. They knew Paul was in prison. And so they said, what can we do? We can't all go there. We'll send Epaphroditus there. He can go. He can minister to Paul and encourage him there in order that he might be rejoicing in what God is doing. 
And over and over again, as others went to Philippi, and the gospel work continued there, they encouraged them, they showed them hospitality, and the gospel work continued. But it was also a continual gospel because Paul says, he says, I'm in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. This is important. Paul says, from the first day until now. So upon conversion, the church at Philippi immediately set to work to do gospel ministry there in their town. And we often see this, right? When somebody first comes to faith in Christ, they're excited, they're passionate, they're desiring to do something for the work of the kingdom. But sadly to say, oftentimes as time goes on, that passion begins to wane off. And what Paul sees as he looks back here at the church at Philippi, he says, you have not quit. You have not given up. You've continued to push forward from the very first moment that you were converted until now, you are continuing to do the work of the gospel. And the reason was, was because the Christians at Philippi realized that there was a job to be done and they were going to do it. And brothers and sisters, not only was there a job to be done in Philippi, but there is a job to be done here in Waynesville. And we must not allow our faith to wane. We must not allow our passions to to despair. We must not allow ourselves to go backwards, but we must be continually pushing forward, realizing that there is much greater things that we need to do here in Waynesville for the sake of the gospel. So not only did Paul have a thankful heart and a prayerful life and a gospel focus, but I want you to notice nextly that Paul had a confident view. Look at verse 6. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That word confident means persuaded. And if actually the, the Greek tense of the word used there means a past completed action with present existing results. He says, I am confident of this. And and brothers and sisters, this is the hope and the foundation of our Christianity, that we can be confident in the work that God has done in our hearts and in our lives and in the lives of those around us who have put their faith and trust in Christ. We have a hope that is found in Christ that is not found in any other religion. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religious system out there. You talk to a Muslim and you say, okay, if you live your life according to the tenets of Islam and you bow to Mecca every single day as you're supposed to do and you make your pilgrimage there and you do everything you can to be obedient to Allah, are you going to go to heaven when you die? I hope so. Well, wait a minute. If you kept all the tenets of Islam and do everything you're supposed to do, don't you know? Nope. I hope so. I'm sure some of you have gotten the knock upon your door from Jehovah's Witnesses who are coming by to tell you about their version of the gospel. And you know why they're doing that? Because they hope to be one of 144,000 who will make it. And you ask them if you knock on every single door in Haywood County, and then you knock on every single door in North Carolina. In fact, if you in your lifetime could knock on every single door in the United States, will you go to heaven when you die? I hope so. The Mormons come knocking on your door. If you keep all the tenets according to Joseph Smith, if you do everything, will you be guaranteed your own celestial kingdom when you die? I hope so. Brothers and sisters, we have a hope. We have a joy. We have a confidence in knowing that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And that when we die, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're going to heaven. Our sins have been forgiven and we have eternal life with him. We don't hope so. We know so. Paul says, I am confident of this. What gave Paul such encouragement while sitting in a Roman prison was that he knew where he was going when he died. He knew that his sins had been forgiven. And he says, I am confident in this. Notice what he says, because he understands who the author of our faith is, that he who began a good work in you, it is God and God alone who saves us. 
We do not save ourselves. We can't even do anything to save ourselves. The scripture tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. A dead body can do nothing, as one preacher put it, but stink. It can't bring itself back to life. It can't resurrect itself. The only thing that can happen is an outside force to move upon that body. And brothers and sisters, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And the only reason that you and I are sitting here today, transformed by the gospel, is because the Holy Spirit moved upon our heart to soften that heart of stone into a heart of flesh that we could understand and see the truth of the gospel for ourselves and that we might trust in him. Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. God is the one who has saved us. Earlier in that book, Paul would say, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. This is the work of regeneration. Paul says, I am confident that he who began a good work in you, the Holy Spirit moved upon your heart, regenerated you that you could put your faith and trust in Christ. And Paul says, not only is God the author of our faith, but he is the sustainer of our faith because he will perfect it. It will be fully completed, and it is God and God alone who keeps us to the very end. Brothers and sisters, God is not going to take you halfway there and leave you. God is not going to take you part of the way to the kingdom and then deposit you somewhere off the side of the road. Isaiah said, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. This is the work of sanctification. God is working in us and through us every single day, conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. I love what William Hendrickson said. He said, God, accordingly, is not like men. Men conduct experiments, but God carries out a plan. And Paul is telling us, he says, I am confident of this thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, who has brought you unto himself, called you out of darkness into his marvelous life, preordained you and chosen you before the foundation of the world, will perfect it, will continue it, will keep it, will see it all the way until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the reward of our faith, and this is the work of glorification. Oh, brothers and sisters, we long for the day when we will depart from this world. And we will no longer have to deal with the struggle of sin. We will no longer have to deal with the fight against temptation, but we will be glorified and receive that body that no longer has to deal with all the effects of the curses of sin of this world. And be encouraged this morning that if you are truly in Christ, that day is coming for you. The reward of your faith will be carried out. This is the work of glorification, but it's also a perfect, beautiful picture that Paul writes here about the perseverance of the saints. Jesus says in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. How do we know someone is in the faith? Because they stay in it. How do we know someone is truly a Christian? Because from the moment of their conversion until the moment that they die, they're still professing faith in Jesus Christ. The work is continued all the way to the end until it is completed. God always completes what He starts. We live in a time, and I've addressed this before, but it bears addressing again. We live in a time where there are so many people, young people and old people alike, who are talking about how they are deconstructing their faith. There's a new term called exvangelical, which means they, somebody who says that they were a Christian, they were an evangelical, and now they have, not, they have departed from the faith. They've turned away from Christianity. They are no longer a Christian. And brothers and sisters, it breaks my heart when I hear people say that because it tells me a couple of things. Number one, it tells us that they were never a Christian to begin with. They may have made the profession. They may have walked the aisle. They may have attended church. They may have read their Bible. But Jesus says that those who are his will come to him and no one can take them out of his hand. That means that the, that the devil can't take them out of his hand. But that means, brothers and sisters, that even you can't take yourself out of the hand of Jesus. 
So it means that they were never saved to begin with. But it also tells us that we live in an age where Christianity is so misunderstood in America that people can think that you can be a Christian and then not a Christian on a whim. The gospel is so misunderstood. And the reason it's so misunderstood is because for so many, the gospel is not an act and a work of God and God alone, but it's an act and a work of man in cooperation with God. God does a little bit and then I do a little bit. God does his part and I do my part. But brothers and sisters, the gospel is clear. The scriptures are clear. That the work of salvation is a work of God and God alone drawing us unto himself. Now, there is a response. We're not denying the fact that the Scripture says that we must repent and put our faith and trust in Him. But we understand that when the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel, when we see God in His holiness and His His splendor, and we see ourselves in our wretched, sinful condition, that the only response that somebody who can understand those things has is to fall on their face and say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. His grace is irresistible. I want you to notice not only does Paul have a confident view, but he has a joyful spirit. Because look at verse 7. He says, it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. This means, it literally means this is the only moral option. This is the only right way to feel. This is the only way that I can do this. He says, because I've had you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. Paul said, there's no other way for me to respond in this circumstance. When I look back and I see everything that God has done, when I see everything that you guys have done for me, he said, the only morally right thing to do is to rejoice in the goodness and the faithfulness that God has done, and it brings such joy to my heart. And notice what Paul says here. He says that it happens in his imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Paul says, even as I sit here in prison, I realize that God is doing this for my own good. God is doing this to grow me in himself, and I'm going to rejoice in the midst of it. Polycarp, that great church father, before he was put to the flames, looked up to heaven and said, I thank thee, O Father, that thou hast judged me worthy of this hour. You can read hundreds of stories in Fox's Book of Martyrs of Christians who went to the flames, went to the gallows, went to the lions, rejoicing, that God would give them such an opportunity to stand for the truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine that? Somebody says, we're going to put you in a coliseum and we're going to set lions loose. And we're going to watch you try to defend yourself until eventually the lions eat you unless you recant and turn your back on Christ. And to look up and say, Lord, thank you. What a privilege. What a joy. What an opportunity it is to stand in such a way to say that, you know what, even under the threat of death, I will not reject my Lord. So Paul says, even in imprisonment, even in discouragement, he was going to rejoice in this. And notice he says in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, the word used for defense there is the word apology. It's where we get our word apologetics. Paul's talking about in defending the faith and and having an articulation to defend the truth of the gospel. The word confirmation there is a word verification. It's talking about the advancement forward and the confirmation of that truth. So Paul's really talking about the breadth of his ministry. He says, not only in my imprisonment, but he says also in the times when I'm preaching and defending the truth of the gospel, and as we are moving forward and advancing the gospel, taking it to new places and proving that it's true. He says, in all of these things... He says, you are partakers of it with me because there was a unity amongst these believers. Their support had not only encouraged Paul, but had played such a vital role, both physically and spiritually in his ministry. They were joint laborers. Part of the benefit, part of the reward that Paul received for his ministry, these believers would receive as well because they had played such an important part. And brothers and sisters, as we send money out to missionaries and as we send money out to gospel projects, we may not be on the front lines where those people are, but we receive the joy and the reward of doing that. 
because we're allowing others to go. Sometimes we can't go. If we can, we should. But if we can't, then let us support them through prayer. Let us support them through finances. Let us support them through encouragement. Paul here is writing a letter back to the church at Philippi to encourage them. I just thought I would encourage you this morning in such a simple way that you can encourage others is just by doing the same thing that Paul did and picking up a pen and picking up a piece of paper and writing a card, writing a letter, sending it to your fellow believers inside the church, sending it to missionaries on the field, sending it to people that you know. I, I, I have found such great enjoyment and sometimes somebody will cross my mind that I haven't thought about in years and I'll look up their address online and just write out a little note and send it to them in the mail. Because I've had people do that to me. And you know what's funny? That the Holy Spirit seems to know when you need those kinds of things. And so Paul is writing to the church at Philippi to encourage them and to thank them for the work of the gospel ministry. Because he has such a joyful spirit. He had such a joy-filled heart because of what they had done. And so finally, I want you to notice verse 8, this loving declaration. He says, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He makes basically an oath here. He's saying, God is my witness. I cannot lie. I must tell the truth. He's using this, and this was not something that Paul would use haphazardly. You know, we, we have the tendency to, to say God is my witness or sometimes some people say, well, you know, I, I swear to God. And they do it such in a haphazardly way. And they, they do it to try to convince somebody that they're telling the truth when most of the time they're lying. But we understand Paul's heart here. We understand his life and how he's saying this because he wants them to understand that this is truth. He says, I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Some translations talks about the bowels, the, the innermost parts of the beam, because in this time period, this is how they talked about affections. They, didn't, they talked about the heart sometimes, but they would also talk about the bowels, the, in, the inside of your being, because you know what that feels like when something happens and you can feel it on the inside. And so Paul's talking about this. He says, I feel it in the deepest, most inner part of my being, in the, in the, most, in the most private part of me. He says, I feel this desire and this love and this affection for you. And he says, and it's not just a love and affection I have in my own self, he said, but it's the very love and the affection of Christ. Calvin said, For the man who loves according to the flesh has respect to his own advantage and may from time to time change his mind according to a variety of circumstances. If Paul just loved this church in his own flesh, he could have the tendency to decide tomorrow, well, you know what? The church at Philippi didn't sin quite as much as they had before. Or, you know, I feel like maybe they're slacking off in, in their prayers for me. Because that's the fleshly side of us. Paul was not a perfect man. He struggled with the flesh just as you and I struggle with the flesh. And this is why Paul said, he says, I'm loving you with the love and the affection of Christ Jesus because Christ's love for us, ladies and gentlemen, does not change. I'm going to say that again. Christ's love for us does not change. We can be disappointed with one another because we sin against each other. Our love can be fickle. But we should rejoice in knowing that Christ's love for us does not change. Yes, you messed up yesterday. Yes, you sinned. Yes, you did something that you should not have done. But you know what? That did not change Jesus' love for you. That did not change Christ's affection towards you. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Brothers and sisters, Paul would point out in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. And here, he demonstrates this fruit of the Spirit in joy and understanding that the foundation of all that joy is what? It's the work of the gospel. It's what God has done in our lives. The reason that we are confident, the reason that we have, have such great joy is because we know who we are in Christ and because we know what we've been called to do. And so I encourage you, remember and be confident in this thing that if you're here this morning 
and you are in Christ Jesus, that He is going to complete that perfect work. He's going to bring it to an end. And if you're here this morning and you are in Christ, God has given us a great work to do for the sake of the gospel. And if we are faithful to commit ourselves to that work, we will know this joy. We will know what it feels like to walk through this life, not having to worry about the circumstances, taking our joy, not having to worry about the events of this world causing us fear, but to know and to trust and to hope in the joy of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the joy that comes from knowing Christ. Lord, if we are honest, we would admit that we probably don't walk in this joy far as often as we should. We don't. Lord, sometimes we don't believe the way that we should when it comes to knowing your joy and comes to knowing the peace that is found in you. But Lord, I pray for us this morning as a church that we would all, every single one of us, as Paul prayed for this church, that we would know the joy that comes from you. Father, we are in a world that can be very easy to be tempted to be discouraged or to be fearful, to look around and to be overwhelmed. But Lord, we know that you are not overwhelmed. And Father, we know that you are continuing to do your work. So Father, help us to know the joy of you, the joy of a relationship with you. Father, help us to commit ourselves to prayer as Paul demonstrated here. Lord, that we may be so intimately connected with you that the joy of Christ is second nature in our lives. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that right now, even as we pray, that your your Holy Spirit will work upon their heart to soften that heart of stone to a heart of flesh that, Lord, they might trust in Christ today. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' mighty name.